to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that would be glory to dwell below with saints we know. That's a different story. It's good to be with you, and I'm Kurt Parker, and it's a pleasure to be in the house together with you, uh, worshiping, giving, singing, praying, all those things saints have been doing since the Lord has gone back to heaven. And if you are a college student, we're glad that you're back. Uh, it's good to see you. We'll be praying for you as you start your new semester. And for those who have been traveling, it's good to have you back safely. And we'd like to invite uh, those who would be participating in our junior church up through grade six. You can be dismissed at this time. And we thank you for uh, teachers for participating there and helping us to lead these little ones. And if you're new, we'd love to have you be a part of that. There's graded classes downstairs and you can follow them down if you'd like and acquaint yourself with what's going on and come on back up when you're all done. But anyway, if you're a guest here today, as Alex mentioned earlier, we're glad that you're here uh, exploring Berean. We trust that uh, it'll be an encouraging time for you. And I also ask you, if you would, before your visit is concluded, would you take that card that's marked uh, Welcome Guest in the chair in front of you? Would you fill that out? Let us know about your visit at the end of the service. You can bring that to me, or you can give it to uh, the gentleman there at the welcome table, and he'll provide you some tickets where you can meet in our fellowship dinner together with us on Wednesdays. God's plan for a healthy church is study through the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, part 8, Unity, and this is Paul's first stop, in particular, chapter 3. This is a new chapter for us. We're going to do a running, get a running start today as our, as our habit, verse by verse, going through. But we're really in the middle, as we look at this passage, and uh, we're back today then in our study of 1st Corinthians. We had a, a break where we bracketed Christmas with Luke, uh, teachings out of Luke 2. And then uh, Steve Clark, a good friend of mine, graciously came and preached last week. And so we're back in our study uh, today that we, were, we concluded back on the 14th of December. So it's been a little bit since we've been there, so we'll do a little bit of a review. So you can be together with us, know where we've been. But in particular, we're in the middle of Paul's first stop in God's plans for a healthy church. Uh, in particular, that focus has been on unity. Uh, this entire, really, this entire third chapter, as we're going to look at it, deals with unity. But it's really loaded with some very, very pertinent, very important things regarding uh, Christian life and conduct. And so we return to our study of 1 Corinthians 3. I invite you to open your Bible there, chapter 3, verse 1. As you're doing that, one of Aesop's fables tells of an old man and his son bringing a donkey to market. Passing some people on the way, they hear the one remark, look at that pair walking when they could be riding comfortably. Well, the idea seems sensible to the man, so... He and the boy mounted the donkey and continued on their way. As soon they passed another group. Look at that lazy pair, said a voice, breaking the back of that poor donkey, tiring him out so nobody will buy him. The old man slid off, of course, but soon they heard another criticism from a passerby. What a terrible thing. The uh, man's walking while the boy gets to ride. And so they changed places, but they soon heard people whispering, what a terrible thing, a big, strong man riding and making the little boy walk. So... They continued on their journey, but they pondered another way to go about it, and so they finally decided that they would carry the donkey on a pole between them to market. And as they crossed a bridge, the donkey broke loose, fell into the river, and drowned. Aesop's moral, of course, that you can't please everyone. I say that to say that as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we notice particularly uh, that Paul's been dealing with the absence of unity in the Corinthian church, and centering around that absence is really... Uh, the divisive attitude regarding those who led the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, particularly, Paul says this, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, Now Paul heard some, uh, heard some rumors of what was going on, and so he's writing them a letter and he's saying, Listen, I've heard this, uh, each one of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I of Christ. And as we saw in our first opening portion of this study, Paul doesn't address the issues and the criticisms that were likely involved here between those leaders. Uh, probably he understood already, at least in part, the wisdom illustrated by Aesop, that you can't please everybody, and it's impossible for that to happen. So he didn't address it, but I think most importantly, uh, and he does address some of these issues in a, little, a little later in the letter, but most importantly, he says in verse 13, he says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And as we pointed out earlier, that um, Paul just uses himself. So nobody can say, well, see, he's on the side of Cephas, or see, he's on the side of Apollos, or whatever. He just says, look, I, did, I wasn't crucified for you. Uh, I, I wasn't, you weren't baptized in my name. Christ hasn't been divided. So he just says, look, whatever the differences may be, the fact of the matter is Christ isn't divided. And so he, he accomplishes that task by using a series of rhetorical questions. And then throughout the early part of the chapter, Paul takes some human wisdom that he understands to be infiltrating the church. And really, as 
the source of division and discord, and he takes it to task. And he starts with a command of them early in the introduction in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no division among you, and that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Now that's quite a sentence, isn't it? In a, device, in a diverse group of people, to say to them that you all agree, that there be no division among you, that you be made complete in the same mind, same judgment. Most people would say, that's funny. Uh, there's no way we're going to all agree, let alone all come to the same conclusion or be of the same mind. But you know what Paul said? Listen, be healed of division. Let there be no division, he says, among you. Don't depart from one another. Christ isn't divided. And then he gives them, after he takes on this human wisdom, and in case someone's asking, you know, how in the world can we say the same thing, he calls the church back to what's important and tells them to focus on the things that are most meaningful, the things that are most important as servants of the Lord and those who wait on his return. And so in 1 Corinthians 2.12, he gives some very personal insight on how that can happen in the Corinthian church. Uh, he says in verse 12, he says, Now we have received, and he's speaking to believers here, and we've pointed that out numerous times as we've gone through the early parts of 1 Corinthians. He's speaking to believers, and he says, uh, We have received, what have they received? The Spirit who is from God. Then verse 13 follows the thought, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So Paul gives a principle here that we talked about um, several weeks ago, and that is those who have the Spirit of God are able to speak this wisdom. And Paul gets back to what he has been intending to do and intending to take on all along. He doesn't want them to speak wisdom of man, which is where factions and divisions come from, uh, which is what they've been doing. Instead, he says, uh, it's a positional truth. Listen. A positional truth is this, you've received the Spirit who's from God. And a positional truth is, these things we also speak. Not words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now, as you look at yourself, and you think about your actions perhaps over the last uh, weeks or months or whatever, perhaps that wasn't true all along, right? I mean, did you always speak words not taught by human wisdom? Did you always combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words? And the answer, if you're me or you, is no, right? So we understand it's a positional truth. But it's a truth nonetheless. And Paul's going to build on this. It's very important as we get into chapter 3, verse 1. You're going to see how he actually builds on this. So he doesn't want them to speak the wisdom of men, which is where factions and divisions occur. Uh, man's wisdom is all going to be swept away. It's all powerless. And he quotes some passages from Isaiah. And we've looked at those. We won't look at them again. Instead, those that are redeemed, who have the Holy Spirit, are taught by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's the position. Obviously, that's where we want to be. Okay? And once again... Uh, as we talked about before, we have a very general approach here, certainly as we think about writers of the scriptures and inspiration. Uh, we have the Spirit of God and we, you know, the things that the Lord has given us, spiritual thoughts, spiritual words, not human wisdom, certainly can apply there. When I pass this information on to you, Paul can certainly be saying, uh, it's not my words, it's God's words, it's the Holy Spirit's words. He uh, carried me along. The thoughts were from the Holy Spirit, the words were from the Holy Spirit. But this doesn't seem to be Paul's primary emphasis. Uh, he says, we, we speak words. We don't speak words taught by human wisdom. We do speak words taught by the Holy Spirit. So in general, he's talking to the congregation there in Corinth, and he's saying, we do this. This is our position. This is also what we're to be about. And so, you know, human writers of the scriptures receive the Holy Spirit, certainly spiritual thoughts, spiritual words. We understand all of that. We looked at that in depth as we went through it. We won't go back again. But, and that's what's available from the words of scripture for all who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Then that's our application, spiritual thoughts, spiritual words. And then he says, not in words taught by human wisdom. And he says that really in the emphatic. He says this, you know, when I came, I didn't speak to you in my own words, Paul says. And uh, that's the example to us as well. The words we're to speak, the words you're to speak. You're to speak in the, uh, the words that which the Spirit has graciously given us in the revelation of God. They come from the Word of God. So Paul, then in the general sense, can make application to inspired writing, but in a specific application, which is Paul's emphasis here, which appears to be his intent, that we includes himself, the readers, all who have the Holy Spirit, which things he says we also speak, uh, not in words taught by human wisdom, because he's dealing with faction, he's dealing with division, he's dealing obviously with backbiting and gossip and all that goes along with the divisions that go along inside this Corinthian church. He says, listen, that's not where you are. Where you are is you speak words, not human wisdom words, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So, Paul just affirms what he said back in verse 8. He says, listen, you know, in verse 8 he said, uh, if, you're, if you don't have the Spirit, you can't understand the things of the Spirit. But in particular, he says, uh, in verse 14, he says, But a natural man does not accept, uh, the, uh, accept 
the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So he makes that contrast. Look, you've got the Spirit. This is where you're supposed to be. Spiritual thoughts, spiritual words. Natural man can't do that. He doesn't do that. He won't do that. You're not going to be that way. Okay? In chapter 3, verse 1, you're going to see why he's saying this. Very important uh, is that emphasis there is uh, coming early here in chapter 2. So, Apart from the Holy Spirit, there's no understanding. There are lots of people, you know, that information. Lots of people have the Bible, don't have understanding, uh, or they have, you know, quenched the Spirit, so they're paying no attention to what the Bible says about their conduct, which is what Paul's dealing with in Corinth, and we're going to see that exact same emphasis in a moment. And when he says natural man, uh, that is Paul saying the fleshly man. He's talking about particularly the unregenerated man. He's talking about, literally, it means belonging to breath, those of the flesh, uh, the life in the physical, material world, and that is... Uh, he can't know the wisdom of God. To him, it's foolishness. If your life is only in Adam, if your life is only in the physical world, he can't know because it's spiritually evaluated, spiritually appraised, spiritually judged, discerned, and he's spiritually dead. Paul says, you can, the world can't, okay? And you should because that's your position and that's what you're supposed to be doing and that benefits the church. Now, Psalm 119, verse 18, really makes that clear. I think that tension that exists between your position and actually the practice, he says, open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful things from your law. Now, no one could say that David didn't read it, that David didn't know it, and David uh, wrote lots of it, okay? And so we understand that connection with David and the Psalms. Now, verse 19, he says, I'm a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. The idea there is, open my eyes so I can see the wonderful things from your law. It's not just that God gave the law. God also, what, has to open the eyes to the understanding. And so the Spirit does just that. And truth is available, but only to those who are illumined uh, are going to understand that truth. But for the redeemed, you know, your position is you can understand it. Your position is you should understand it. Your position is you should speak it. Now, verse 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just follow along with me. And if you've been here, you know these things. If you haven't, this is uh, going to be helpful to build the foundation for where we're going today. But he who is spiritual, it says, appraises all things. Essentially, a positional truth. He who is spiritual understands these things. He possesses the spirit. He has that resident truth teacher within him. If you have the Holy Spirit, there is the resident truth teacher. There's the evaluator at appraises. Uh, Anacrino, a uh, Greek verb, pretty important. A word has to do with a judge holding an investigation. The ability, the right, uh, the wisdom to do it, present active ind indicative. So the believer then, here's the essence, is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit uh, may find then uh, an outlet then for these wonderful things, an ongoing condition in his life to speak spiritual things, th think spiritual thoughts, be of one mind, say the same thing, come to the same conclusion. All these are positional, and then they need to be practical, and the power is there to do it. Now, as a side note, as you think about those things, and you think about the problems that they're having here in Corinth, uh, do you think that Paul would have evaluated those who were involved in the preferences and the factions in Corinth as correctly appraising all things? No. That's why he's going through it, all right? It's not just kind of some theological argument that he's making off to the side that has no connection, all right? He's just saying, listen, you've got the Holy Spirit. You can evaluate correctly. You can say the right things. You can speak the right things. You can come to the right conclusion uh, because you have the Holy Spirit resident in you, and he's going to say in just a minute, and you have the mind of Christ, all positionally true and need to be practically true. So uh, that's the reason for the emphasis, I think, here is that's not going on in the Corinthian church. So Holy Spirit then by him we take the word of God, he makes it alive, he makes it meaningful, and this is for all believers, see? And of course, Paul emphasizes this in the church at Corinth and every other believing church, and Paul is prompting them to reconnect with this truth teacher, move away from the wisdom of man, and that's why he says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 6, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Very important. We do do that, and those who are mature understand that. And then he says in verse 15 and 15, 14 and 15, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. And then he adds this at the end, yet, by, yet he himself is appraised by no one. That's a pretty important statement. The one who has the resident truth teacher and is thinking spiritual thoughts and speaking spiritual truths, the one that the Holy Spirit is actively involved in, bringing these understandings to light in the life, is appraised or is brought up under an investigation by no one. And the idea here is... That the Holy Spirit is never going to guide someone to the point where they could be, there could be a legitimate accusation brought against them. Okay, so that's the point. The point of Paul is, as he applies this to the Corinthian church, this is where they are. This is what needs to be happening. This is what's actually going on. And it doesn't have to go on because this can occur. Uh, this spirit teacher can guide and all of these things can be correct and you'll be where you need to be. Now, 
to support that point, he says, then in 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? For those who have the resident Holy Spirit and control of thoughts and words, they won't need instruction. Where do those involved in faction fall in that category? Uh, they needed instruction, right? Did they need instruction? Unfortunately, yes, as we're going to see in chapter 3. But uh, not so for those who are mature. The last part of verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. Positional truth, certainly. Uh, practical truth, how's it going to work out? If you have the mind of Christ, if you have the spirit truth teacher resident in your life, then that question is, how can we all agree? How can we all say the same thing? How can we come to the same conclusions? becomes obvious because those things that are most important to the Holy Spirit, uh, which are most important to the mind of God, then become the most important thing to the church, and the church then puts aside those things that only distract it, cause it to have, be sidelined and ineffective in ministry. Okay? So, spiritual thoughts, spiritual words, resident truth teacher who knows the deep things of God. This is where he wants the saints at Corinth, and again, a positional truth which has to be worked out experientially, and that's where he wants the saints everywhere manifesting the mind of Christ. Now, to sum up, as we think about all that we've talked about, and we've tried to sum up about two months' worth of messages there in about eight or nine minutes, okay? To sum that up, Paul's first step here, as he looks at this Corinthian church, and as you've read First and Second Corinthians, you know the difficulties that are there. The first thing he stops at is unity. He's carried along by the Holy Spirit, brings to the church this idea that the church is supposed to be healthy, God wants it to be healthy. This Corinthian church is not healthy. It has a bunch of disunity going on there, and one of the reasons there's no unity is because there's division, and division is a sin. And so I think you can get down to that, and you just boil it right down. That's where he is. And so he's going to get to chapter 3, verse 1, and that's really what he's bringing in to chapter 3, verse 1. Okay, and he gives to make it really clear. So look at chapter 3 now. Verse 1, we're going to read through verse 9. That's really the, the natural cutoff there, and we'll get as far as we can get today as we're running up to this passage. We probably won't get super far into the text, but we'll get far enough, I think, to get an idea for uh, the direction Paul is going. It'll give us a springboard and an outline so that we know where we're going next week. Uh, look at verse 1. We're going to talk, we're going to start with, and I, brethren, and I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard. You can find that in the chair in front of you, or I'll give you some verse cues and we can stay together, okay? Chapter 3, verse 1, 1 Corinthians, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but asked him in a flesh, so as to infants in Christ. Verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. Verse 3, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Verse 4, for when one says, here he comes back to the same thing, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Verse 5, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Verse 7, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you, he says, are God's field, God's building. Let's stop right there. Now, you see how, and I'll just say this just quickly, verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. Then he says, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You see where he says that? Now, he is foreshadowing what's going to come up as you get to verse 10. And the beam of sheet of Christ and all that is going to be called into account there. And this is going to be a wonderful study for us. And that's why I said, as Paul gets into chapter 3, he is still dealing with this issue of unity. But... He's also dealing with Christian conduct. He's just dealing with the understanding of what is to happen with believers in general, uh, not just specifically here uh, with this issue that he's bringing to light. So Corinth has a problem of an absence of unity. One of the sins that are creating this problem is faction and division. And we've studied before, no sin is isolated. No sin is by itself. Sins always seem to con combine with other things. And in Corinth, division was not isolated. It wasn't an isolated sin that existed somehow in a vacuum there for Corinth. Uh, it was a product of other sins like pride and envy and jealousy and gossip, and these all create division. Uh, they all have their own problems individually, but together they can create other problems. They're all sins by themselves and create other sins. Division was a very serious thing. Paul knew, of course, if he could correct division, he could take care of a lot of other things, so he spends a tremendous amount of time on this particular, particular issue. Now, in order to get a running start for our study, chapter 3, we know that Paul's addressing believers here. 
okay? And he said it over and over again. Chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses the recipients of this letter as saints, okay? And so we see that they're believers. Uh, beginning of first verse of chapter 3, we'll see in just a minute, uh, Paul addresses the readers as brethren. So he's talking about those who are born again. We, so we see they're believers. They are, they are new converts, just to give a background of the church, of course. Uh, no second-generation Christians here. No one out of a Christian uh, background or some Christian environment or, or, or uh, culture. Uh, straight out of paganism, straight out of idol worship, straight out of whatever uh, they were doing before. Brand new believers uh, bringing with them, of course, as we've talked about before, if you have certain vices in your life and you come to Christ, uh, if you're a liar, if you're, if you're a thief, if you're a profane person or whatever it is you are, and you come to faith in Christ, uh, you're still a liar and a thief and a profane person with now the resident Holy Spirit instructor who lives inside of you and begins to understand, uh, help you understand the scriptures and that sanctification process begins to occur and the Holy Spirit begins to do his change in you. Okay, behold, all things are becoming new. And that's a wonderful thing to think about as the Lord makes us new and all of us have things in our past for which we were ashamed, and we're so grateful the Lord has delivered us from those things, okay? And so understand, that's, that's, the, that's the, the people Paul is talking to. <clears throat> Brand new believers, straight out of idolatry, straight out of a pagan lifestyle. They've been redeemed, obviously, though, finding this new life in Christ difficult. And that's not news to you, is it? Nor is it news to me. The new life in Christ is difficult. The Christian life is difficult. Maybe you expected it to be different. <clears throat> I remember particularly... Just as an illustration, our family, a couple years ago, we like to camp and take our camper out. And a few years ago, we were at a park uh, campsite, and uh, the boys, the older boys and I took out our mountain bikes, and we like to do this, go through the, uh, the tra take the trails uh, through the woods. And we were on a particular 14-mile loop trail, is what it said on the map. And it cut straight through the woods. It was real rough. It hadn't been trimmed, and we were just kind of going through there. But it was about a six-mile climb. I mean, we'd gone about six miles, but we were still climbing. We're like, man. And everybody knows who rides bikes, and even when you were a kid, you like to go downhill. It's fun, right? And uh, just hold the pedal still and just as fast as you can. You remember that, tucking down in the, you know, in the, in the handlebars. And uh, you like to do that when you're mountain biking, too. It's nice to go down, not have to push all the time and cut down through the woods and all that. We're waiting for that to occur. And so we get to a plateau, and uh, so we stop, and we're taking a drink, and we're thinking, all right, after this, it's going to be downhill. It's going to be great. But what we found is if we got back on the bike, that it was a plateau, and then we start climbing some more. And all the downhill part was just a little small section. It was actually on the road. And so we climbed, like, probably 13 miles, and then the last mile was, like, a winding road down back towards the camp. And so it wasn't that great. But what we found, and the illustration really is this, is that we were riding, and we were thinking that at some point it was going to get easier that we were going to climb six or seven miles, we'd get up to the top, and then we'd go trucking back down the other side, and we'd just have a great time. But that wasn't how it occurred. And it was hot that day, and it, that, was a, that was a miserable ride. Bugs everywhere, and I mean, it was just... But I think that that's really how the Christian life kind of works out in some respects, okay? Problem with witnessing to someone and saying to them, hey, wouldn't you like your life to be better in Christ? I mean, if you come to Christ, your life's going to be better. I mean, everything's going to be great, right? The equivalent, I think, and uh, the way the Master uses this, it says... Uh, you know, there's two different kinds of witnessing. One of the witnessing uh, ways is this way. Uh, you imagine people getting on an airplane flight, and uh, that's salvation, and you give to them uh, a life preserver, and you say, strap this on. This is going to make your flight wonderful. Okay? And so the person gets on. They put the life preserver on. They get it all tightened up. And, of course, they sit down in the seat and, and uh, a parachute and, and a flotation device and all the stuff that's there. And uh, you can imagine that after the flight goes on a little while, that's probably not the most comfortable flight they've ever been on or anything the most comfortable thing they've ever been doing, right? Because they're sitting in a seat, packed in with other people, and they got this parachute on and this life preserver, and it's all very, it's cramping their style, and it's wrinkling their tie, and it's making their neck itch, and, and all the stuff that goes on with, okay. And so you get partway through just thinking, this is not making my life better, all right? I, I don't like this. I, I want to I get rid of this. This is not good, Okay. Or you've got the other witnessing uh, approach, which is this way. You get on the airplane. This is your parachute, your life preserver, and um, this flight's not going to make it all the way through. And you're going to need this at some point along the way. And so the person takes the, uh, the parachute, life preserver, and they strap it on, and they sit down in their seat. They're not sitting down to be comfortable. They're sitting down thankful that they have something on that at some point throughout the flight they're going to need. Now, I say that to say that sometimes when we witness, we approach it from the wrong direction, don't we? We say to somebody, wouldn't you like peace? Wouldn't you like joy? Wouldn't you like a father that never leaves? Wouldn't you like hope that never fails? Whatever it is, okay? We approach it that way. And what we're doing is taking the fruit and the benefit of being born again and, and saying to someone, 
this is what's going to be yours as soon as you come to faith, right? Because some of the things that are the fruit of being born again are not realized until we're with the Father. And so people come in with false illusion. Instead, we say, you know, you're separate and sinful from God and under a curse, and apart from changing that course, you're bound for eternal hell. But there is an escape. It's found in Christ. Christ has paid your debt. And if you'll admit that that's who you are and that's what you've done, and understand that he did that for you and confess that to be true, you can be saved from your sin, you see. And so I think when people come in with that understanding, then they're not expecting the ride to get any easier. And when you're on the cross-country trip with your bike and, you, and you're just climbing all the time and you're thinking maybe, maybe we can go downhill and you realize you're not going to be able to, that's not a surprise, see. And so I think the Corinthians came into life perhaps, uh, they came into the, uh, the Christian life, they're finding it difficult. Maybe uh, undoubtedly Paul gave the correct message, but they're finding the, they're finding the route difficult. And uh, that's a lot like a Christian life. You, you're new in the faith. Perhaps you've noticed it's much harder to live now than when you were first saved. Perhaps you notice now you notice sin a lot more than you ever thought about it before you came to be born again, right? And before you came to be born again, you and your natural, your, yourself, the real t- you and your flesh were in perfect harmony with each other. Whatever the flesh wanted to do, the natural man was perfectly content to do. But now that you come to faith and the new you's inside, the natural man uh, is dead, but the flesh is still around and the flesh wants to do stuff and the new you's kind of wants to do it but, and remembers what it was like, but doesn't want to do it because there's a law of God at work in your heart and guiding your heart and the Holy Spirit's resident there. And so, you know, there's, there's some problems there and there's some difficulty and, you know, you, you hope that you're going to be able to cruise and then you, you soon get into the thing and you find out there's greater difficulty all the time. Why is it not easy to live the Christian life, even though we have the Holy Spirit inside of us? Why is it difficult to do the things we know we want to do, to do the things that it's right to do, God says, to be done? Well, there's two reasons, really, and once again, as we run up to this passage, I want to make sure we touch on them, that it's really difficult, and everything really can be reduced to these two things, two things that make the Christian life difficult. First of all, um, there's the internal pressure. You're in opposition to the desires of your own flesh. That's a problem. See, you're you're encased in unredeemed flesh, Uh, and you were with us in our study of Romans. Paul put it this way. He says... uh, I find then, and if Paul says this, this is great comfort, right? Misery loves company. And if we understand Paul's having a difficulty, it helps us, even though it's, it's still not fun. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Well, is it the new man who's evil? No, the new, new man's been made new. Uh, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, fused with Christ, Romans 6 says, right? Uh, verse 22, for I joyfully concur, uh, concur with the law of God in the inner man. That's the new you, the real you after salvation. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body. There's the problem, isn't it? This unredeemed flesh we still live in. The members of my body are causing me some problems. They've got a, new, they've got a different law working with them, the one that's always been working with the flesh, right? That's not new. Waging war against the law of my mind and making, a prisoner, uh, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my, again, Paul wants to confirm, members. Okay, a pretty important principle. Why is it difficult to live the Christian life? First of all, there's internal conflict going on. There's, you're in opposition to the desires of your own flesh, see. And men are born sinful, and because, uh, you know, they're born to sinful parents, and that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, where sin entered the human stream. And that's the headship principle. It really works their way out in our actions. We are born a slave to sin. It's true of every human being that's ever been born. Salvation comes. God's wrath is satisfied. The penalty of sin is paid, and the power of sin is broken. And Romans 6 tells us, they were united with Christ in his death. The old you, the one that was united with Adam, died. The new you, the one that's united with Christ, raised to life. The true you has been made righteous and imputed righteousness is yours and you're holy and you're set apart as a position of your life. However, that new you is still residing in this unredeemed flesh. And although the Holy Spirit has been given residence to help bring that flesh into subjection through that process we talked about just a minute ago called sanctification, and further, triumph over the unredeemed flesh is assured because the day's coming when this flesh will be glorified, and we know that to be true. The daily path to the ultimate triumph is a struggle. And though we win the battle, ultimately, we lose a lot of skirmishes along the way. So the internal pressure of this unglorified flesh, this flesh that still has appetite for sin, is part of the problem. Secondly, it's the external pressure. The external pressure, you're in opposition to the current of the world. When I say that, I just mean you're going against the current. It's going the opposite direction that you're trying to go. And it isn't easy. 
the world is geared to go a certain direction and you're going the opposite way and that makes it hard. Uh, that's the external pressure. That's the reason why this external pressure is there and, it's, uh, and there's a reason there and it's because of this. First John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us this. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies where? In the power of the evil one. So there's an active dynamic going on in the world that we live in uh, so it shouldn't surprise us that we're going against the current of the world. Why is that? Well, we live in a world where Satan and the demonic host temporarily uh, have dominion. And they are at work condemning believers and deceiving the world and even deceiving believers at times. And, you know, he can certainly use the appetites that Satan and the demonic host, the appetites of the flesh and the old habits of the flesh, the internal, because he has set the tone of the world. And so that tone is opposite of the one that we uh, want to be a part of, and he certainly uses it in the life of the believer, and that's the external. And so, very important to understand that concept as you understand, well, how could it be that Paul identifies the believers in Corinth as saints, and then later he calls them brethren, and then they're having such grievous issues going on inside the church. And this is not news for you, and I understand that. And if we all put up our hands and embarrassed ourselves and said where the grievous issues are that we are struggling with, that wouldn't be too much fun. But uh, we might find a lot of healing, of course, that way, but that wouldn't be really what we'd want to do at this point. But we understand this. So what I'm saying is this is the biblical definition of what's actually going on in the struggle that's occurring and why Paul's having to deal with this issue amongst a church that obviously is redeemed. So it all makes it, as we go back to our first illustration, impossible to coast. There's not going to be any coasting or very few times where we can actually coast. And actually, what's really nice is when we're at church, that's really how the church is supposed to be, a sanctuary where we can actually kind of rest a little bit, right? and encourage one another, and, and uh, admonish, and, and uplift one another, and meet one another's needs, and all that kind of stuff, okay? But there are not many easy points on the trail. And now back to Corinth, Paul says to them, uh, for all intents and purposes, your division is caused by two things, okay? Um, and it's no surprise that those two things are the two things we just looked at, uh, because worldliness and fleshliness are things that we understand uh, to be impacting uh, the church. And so, first of all, the division of Corinth... Uh, really at Corinth is caused by worldliness. Uh, now we think of worldliness usually as things that are done. Uh, that certainly is, is true. Um, action certainly manifests worldliness. Look forward, hold your finger right here. Look forward a few chapters to 1 Corinthians 6. Will you do that? Actions can certainly indicate uh, worldliness, uh, but I want to get to, the, I think, the real point of, of uh, where we find this whole worldliness, this um, inward and outward pressure that produces this in, in our lives. But anyways, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and we'll get here, but Paul says this, and I don't want to parse this out too carefully because I want to spend some time when we get there because it's including a different topic. But Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? You, you, surely you know that. The unrighteous aren't going to inherit. A pattern of unrighteousness, an unbroken pattern where the flesh and the, the person who is the real you is uh, completely absorbed with one another with no conflict. That, that person's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, verse 10, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ultimately, well, worldliness is an attitude. That attitude has symptoms of what we just read. But I think 1 John 2.15, you can go back if you would to uh, 1 Corinthians 3. But 1 John 2.15 really makes this clear. It says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And those are all attitudes, aren't they? Those are all attitudes as it relates to worldly things, right? Um, buying into whatever the worldly philosophies are, whatever the attitude of the world might be, being stamped in the world's image as we saw from Romans 12 verse 2. Um, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Don't be stamped in the world's image, but be transformed. Don't be worldly in your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All those things then, you know, really talk about or come from an attitude of worldliness. And in the case of the Corinthians, they behaved like the world and they were following the world's philosophies. And so Paul says to them in chapter 1, verse 8, all the way to chapter 2, verse 16, he says this, your problem is you're divided because you're buying into world's philosophies. You're worldly in your approach to what needs to go on amongst you. 
Everybody brings to the church the wisdom of the world. Everybody brings to the church what they think is right. You can't agree because you trust your own preferences or you hang on to your own conclusions based on the wisdom of man, and that's why you have discord. So you're worldly, he says. That was their first problem. But there's a second problem. The second reason for their division in chapter 3 uh, is the flesh. The second reason they're divided was because instead of functioning in the spirit, as we already indicated, which could be the case, and is certainly positional for the believer, they're functioning in the flesh. He reveals that in chapter 3. And whenever the flesh functions, two words really will characterize it, and those words are self-centered. Division manifests self-centeredness. Fleshliness always is, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to demand my own rights. I don't care what God wants me to do. I don't care if what uh, Jim read this morning says what it says. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's fleshliness. That's self-centeredness. Regardless of what God says, I'm going to do what I want. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, great illustration for fleshliness, says this. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, you're thinking, well, I don't do any of those things. Idolatry, sorcery. I, I would never have sorcery in my house, right? I don't do so. Enmities, oops, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So worldliness and fleshliness, then, as we can see, as some of those cross into our own front yards, we're creating division in the church. And the, and the folks in Corinth were having some difficulty with those things. They were buying the world's wisdom, they were behaving in the world's patterns, self-centered, prideful, internal, fleshly desire, overruling the statements of the word and, re and the revelation of God. So as we gain a running start on this passage, you can see from 1 Corinthians 6 and from 1 John 2 and from Galatians 5, the enemies of unity and effective kingdom building are worldly wisdom and the flesh. That will always derail kingdom building. It will always derail unity. And it's those things, those worldly wisdom and the flesh, begin individually in the believer and then manifest corporately in the church. And that's why Paul had to take the time to write to Corinth. Now, starting in our text, Paul's going to make, he's going to really tackle this disease of division from the standpoint of fleshliness. Because you've already talked about worldliness. He said you brought worldly wisdom in. You're trying to solve uh, problems amongst you with your own preferences. Paul says that's not going to work. And knowing that the Lord desires unity, Paul's carried along here, almost like a physician. And, and, and this is where we're going to get our outline, because it's just obvious in the text. So he says, this is what you do, here's what it looks like, here's what it's causing, and here's how to cure it. That's basically Paul's approach. And, but we see that over and over again uh, in the New Testament, but particularly here, we're going to see it illustrated perfectly, I think. But he's a spiritual physician, if you will, all the way through 1 Corinthians, diagnosing, then describing the symptoms, then offering cures. Now, he comes to this disease of division, and it is an ugly disease, really ugly, it's very, very contagious. Uh, you can have a division uh, at the church in a small level, and boy, that thing can spread. And not only does it affect the church, but it affects the world, because an ununited church, a divided, wrangling, fighting church, loses its effectiveness in testifying of the gospel. And remember that Paul called them back to the simple gospel, the simple story that the world thinks is foolishness. He says, look, don't do what you're doing. Come back to the original thing that you're supposed to be doing because he knew they'd gotten away from it. So it affects all parts uh, of this uh, corporate body. Back in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 7, if you remember this, he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He says, So that your faith and your re it would not rest in the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. So Paul says, Look at my example when I came to you. This is, how, this is what I did whatever divisions might have been among you, whatever things you may have not liked about me. And Paul's going to talk about that later in, in 1 Corinthians, the things that the Corinthians brought up to them, very rude uh, to Paul, very un, un, uh, unthankful, very disrespectful to Paul. He's going to talk about those later. But right now he just says, look, when I came, this is what I did. A very simple message. Verse 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of the sage, nor of the rulers of the sage who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. He calls him back to that simple message. He says, look, this is where you need to go. Uh, you've got worldly wisdom at work. That's not what you want. You need to come in with a simple message. Come back to it. Be unified under that simple message. So he goes and tells them, uh, the world, you know, world can't figure out the gospel, uh, which is to say, and he's going to say this later in 1 Corinthians, he's going to say this, 
If the church isn't telling them, it's no wonder the world doesn't know, see? And he's going to say later, and I say this to your shame, to the Corinthian church, uh, if the gospel's hidden, it's hidden to those who don't believe. And if you're just kind of wrapped up in your own thing, you're certainly not getting that out. So, uh, you know, if your church is wrapped up in worldly wisdom and faction, they aren't going to know, they're not going to be telling, uh, giving the gospel out to, uh, you know, those who are unsaved aren't going to see it. So it affects everything inside the church, the church itself and the world. And he's going to talk to them about that issue later. Paul's going to give three things, and we're going to see this process numerous times as the Holy Spirit carries Paul along in 1 Corinthians. But it really gives us our, it really gives us our outline. Um, he's going to give the cause. He's going to give the symptoms, what it looks like personally and what it looks like corporately in the church. And then he's going to give the treatment, how it's healed. And that really becomes the handholds for us as we work our way through the passage. So it's a pretty simple approach. And so let's just follow Paul. Go back to 1 Corinthians 3.1, and we'll look as we have time uh, just a few of the words because they're very, very important. First um, Corinthians chapter three verse one he says and brethren. Now we've talked about that already, so I don't want to spend a lot of time there. It just indicates to us who to whom he speaks. And we, it reminds us that this is to the church. This is to the redeemed. Um, and by saying that, it's a term of love. It's a term of affection. It's a term of quality, equality. Paul likes to say we. He says brethren to people. You know, we think Paul, as I said this before, is looking down his nose like this. That's how I think about Paul looking down his nose at me and saying, "Get your act together." Uh, but Paul was not like that. Okay, we together. Brethren, and so Paul addresses it that way. Um, but in addition, I think it's a sort of softening of a rebuke, because a rebuke is a rebuke is coming. So he just says, "Brethren," and then he's going to give the honest, hold, cold, hard truth, the cause, the symptoms, and the treatment. And he says this, and he gets right into it. He doesn't mince words. Okay, so Paul's not about trying to be popular, obviously. So because uh, when you say this, when you say, "I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ," that doesn't go down very easily. Um, that's a medicine that's hard to take. And, and here he tells them what was causing their division. It wasn't just environment, okay? It's not just because you're in Corinth and it's a wicked city. It's not because you're out of idolatry and you're coming out of, of pagan lifestyles and all that stuff. It wasn't just worldly pressure. Uh, it wasn't just worldly wisdom. It's their own fleshliness. And remember, he just got through telling him in 1 Corinthians 2.16 they had the mind of Christ. And earlier in 1 Corinthians 2.14 and 15 that they had the resident Holy Spirit who can guide them in proper thought, proper word, Right? And so he says, listen, I couldn't talk to you that way. And so he introduces the problem. I could not speak to you, he says, as spiritual men. Hos pneumaticos. Those two words are pretty important as Paul uses them as an illustration. Okay? It's like or as one who is governed by the Spirit of God. I couldn't speak to you, Paul says, like or as one who is governed by the Spirit of God. That's the essence of the statement by Paul. Um, the word hos or like or as is very important in this sentence, and you're going to see in just a minute why. And I want to make sure that we define the terms here because it's been so badly misused by the charismatic movement, the spiritual uh, thing and the Holy Spirit and what he does, that I want to talk about it there. It's misunderstood by our culture as well. And to illustrate that, I guess, if you have unsaved relatives, as I do, um, some of my relatives would refer to me as a spiritual person. Anybody have a definition of yourself that way by unsaved relatives? He's very spiritual, or he's religious. And they say that with the best possible intent. I mean, they're not maligning me. I mean, they may be when I'm not around, but like he's weird. I mean, whacked. That guy is whacked. All right. But when they say it to me or they say it about me, it's really, it's their perception of what I am. Okay. He's a spiritual person. And they just mean from their perspective that I'm religious, that, you know, from their perspective, I do good or whatever, uh, that I'm, you know, dedicated to spiritual things, you know, whatever. Okay, but, and in the world, if, if you see somebody, in general, so you say somebody's spiritual, what may they be saying? They're very spiritual. They may be saying, like, you know, the occult, uh, you know, whatever's going on, you know, ghosts and whatever. You're, you're into the, the, the other plane of existence or whatever, right? So it can be, mean a lot of different things, okay? But it doesn't mean those things for Paul, and I, that's why I want to take some time. Every single believer, listen, it's important. Uh, the Bible, it means something very different uh, from what the world perhaps means by spiritual, Okay? Um, and the reason why I say that is, I say that the Bible refers to people as spiritual because the Holy Spirit resides there, okay? Every single believer has been sealed by the Spirit according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Everybody, okay? Everybody, every believer is spiritual because they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Every single believer, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Every single believer, spiritual, Okay? Um, every single believer has been indwelt by the Spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. All right? So by spiritual, it means this. Every single believer indwelt by the Spirit. We have 
Now, we have received uh, in the past act with future consequences, of course, continuing. Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Every single believer has been baptized by the spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Every single one. But by one spirit, we were all, and all means all, and that all, all means, right? All baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Everybody who's born again has all been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's not sitting out there in your future for you to have some ecstatic utterance. You've already had it happen, okay? You've been baptized by one spirit into one body. And all that happened at salvation. So Paul is addressing the believers in Corinth. He must be referring to them as spiritual in that sense, okay? Not in just that they're good or not that they're, you know, on a different plane or whatever, okay, they're religious, but that they're spiritual because they have the Holy Spirit and he's been involved in their life. It's a positional statement. That's important to remember, as we talked about earlier, that you, know, you have the resident Holy Spirit, spiritual thoughts, spiritual words, uh, that you have the might of Christ, positional certainly, but we want to work that out practically. Well, this is another positional uh, uh, idea and understanding. Because there's no such thing as a Christian that's not sealed and dwelt and baptized by the Spirit. Everybody who's born again has had that occur. So that isn't his emphasis, okay? Not just that, because everybody's had that, okay? Uh, there are Christians that don't obey the Spirit. There are Christians who quench the Spirit. There are believers that are not filled with the Spirit. How do I know that? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 is pretty clear about that, right? I, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, it's possible for you not to be filled with the Spirit from time to time, right? And so that uh, the Spirit then is not in control. And that's really what the passage is talking about, isn't it? In other words, don't be filled with wine, so that's going to control you, but be filled with the Spirit so that He will control you. So a very important passage and very important principles. Once again, we're seeing here, 1 Corinthians, the difference between position and practice. It's like what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where Peter says, this is a great illustration, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul's referring to believers. You are, he said, living stones. You're as living stones, okay? Um, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's us. That's our position. That's what we have. That's who we are. But we always don't act like a holy priesthood, do we? And uh, we don't always offer up spiritual sacrifices, do we? But as God looks at us through Christ, we are and we do in position those things. One more quick illustration as we get really a running start. We're going to close. Uh, Romans 8, verse 6. Read quickly. Turn there, actually, if you would. Romans 8, verse 6. Hold your finger here. I, wanna, I want you to see this. This is super, super important, okay? And if you weren't with us in a Roman study, or it's been a while since you've looked at it, I want you to see this. This shows really uh, this position and practical aspects of the Holy Spirit's work and what Paul's going to be referring to as he says these things to the Corinthian believers. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. It's the same distinction Paul's making here, okay? He says this, verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh, see where I am, is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Now pause right there. So here he equates, watch this, spirituality with life. And who has the life? Believers, right? Right. Christians. Who then spiritual? Christians, right? That's who he's talking about. It's, it's a pretty simple start, okay? For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So who has life and peace? Only those who have believed. So we understand the target, okay? Verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so he's talking about those born again, those who are not born again, those who are in the flesh, those who are in the spirit, those who are, have the mindset on uh, the spirit is life and peace, okay? Now mark this, look at verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh. So he wants to make sure that they understand that there's this clear distinction. You, who's you? The recipients of the letter in Rome. Believers, some people who've come to faith in Christ. Okay? Those who have the mindset of the Spirit. Okay? You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, who's he speaking to here? Who does the Spirit of God dwell in? We just looked at it. Just some Christians? All Christians. The Holy Spirit dwells in all believers, Right? Now, keep going. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
He does not belong to him. So we get a little dynamic of the spirit. It's the spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of, of the living Christ. He does not belong to him. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though, the body is dead because of sin. Now, once again, we see that wonderful understanding of what's going on with the body and what's going on with the new you. Yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, let's go backwards in the verse. If a man has the spirit, he belongs to Christ, right? If the spirit of God dwells in you, you're in the spirit, not in the flesh. That is saying... No Christians in the flesh, right? All Christians are in the spirit. So that's a positional statement. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which means you're a born-again believer, just different ways to describe what it looks like to be born again. Here it is. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation. Now it becomes, goes from positional to what? Practical. If you understand who you are, if you understand who the Holy Spirit dwells in, if you understand the essence of the new life, here's the practical part. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Why? Because that's not who you are anymore. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. So if you've never been redeemed, you're going to be dead. Why would you want to live like someone who's dead? But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So you give indication of who you belong to by what you're about. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So, stop right there. Now, don't turn back because I, I want you to go to verse 26 in just a minute. How can you tell if you're a son of God? Well, if you're led by the Spirit of God. Because all sons of God are what? Led by the Spirit of God. That's a positional statement. But you don't always look like that, do you? You don't always look like you're being led by the Spirit of God, right? Which is why practically, sometimes, it's hard to tell if you and I are children of God on a day-to-day -day basis. Positionally, you're being led by the Spirit of God, every single believer, because that's true. And Paul says that's the, that's the fact, that's the cold hard facts of your identity in Christ. But it doesn't always look that way, does it? So you see, there's a positional thing, even though we're in the Spirit, we can do the deeds of the flesh once in a while, but here he's talking about our position, not our practice. And then this wonderful tidbit from verse 26. Look there if you would with me. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. So even when we mess up, in practice. Okay? So as we're going along, we're being led by the Spirit, right? Because that's our position. We're guided by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. All the things are true about you. And yet, in the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses because we still live in this unredeemed flesh. And Paul says there's a battle against the war that's, war that's going on and what's in my members and what's in my mind. Okay? What happens? For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows, the mind of the Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28. Now we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now mark this, beloved. Okay? And with this, we're going to wrap up. Okay? All that practical stuff in your life to make it appear that the Holy Spirit isn't leading, and on a day-to-day -day experience, you're quenching that spirit. All of that stuff is going to be brought around to work together for good, whether you're cooperating regularly or not. How about that? How about that? And that's the practical application of what the Holy Spirit's going to do. You are being led by the Spirit. You are controlled by the Spirit. You are baptized by the Spirit. You are uh, indwelt by the Spirit. And so is the Spirit just kind of standing by and, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever, you know, you just do it, and then I'll let you have the final outcome. No! According to this, he's going to bring that all back around, isn't he? He's going to pray where our weaknesses are. He's going to, he's going to, and here's the thing. We're told not to quench the Spirit. Why? You're told to cooperate with what the Spirit wants you to do. It's a lot better to cooperate, right? And maybe you thought, you know, just being sealed by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit was just so much meaningless theology. No. So this should not surprise you. Your life is directed by the Holy Spirit. So because of you, with you, or in spite of you, he's going to put it together to bring about God's glory to the ultimate good. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to. Are you ever out from under the control of the Holy Spirit? I mean, you can be doing your own thing there for a while, and what you're going to find yourself is slapped into Hebrews 12 and getting chastised. Okay? The fact of the matter is, beloved, 
The Lord wants you to be a part of what's going on. See, he wants you to do what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. He wants you to speak spiritual words. He wants you to have spiritual thoughts. He wants you to be of one mind. He wants you to come to the same conclusions because you have the mind of Christ and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit and you can understand the words of the scriptures, see. But if you decide not to for a few uh, points in your life, the Lord's still going to bring all that back around and use it for your good, for his ultimate glory, which is the ultimate good. He's going to paint that picture, which includes all your, your selfishness and all your fleshliness and all your worldliness and whatever, Okay, he's going to correct all that and bring that all back around, see? So Paul's established for us then the understanding. Here's how I want to bring it back together. Provided for every believer the gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? So when Paul says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, understand, it's not just this general term of being on this weird plane, okay? Or that you're just a good person or whatever. He's not talking about that, okay? He's talking about a lot more important stuff than that, okay? Every believer, positionally, characterized, sealed by, indwelt by, made to understand spiritual things by, 1 Corinthians 2.15, even led by, whether they like it or not, the Holy Spirit, every single one, okay? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.1, catch this, you know, this is our springboard for next week, okay? In spite of the fact that you are positionally spiritually, positionally spiritual, practically, you're not living spiritually. So, I look back at 1 Corinthians 3.1, I couldn't speak to you as what? Spiritual men. See? That's the point. I could not speak unto you, he says, as I should have been able to speak unto you as the spiritual. In fact, Paul says, the reality of it is, here at Corinth, the practical outworking of their life was, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. That's the problem, see? That's the problem. I have to speak to you as I would to carnal, as unto babes, Paul says in Christ. Those uninitiated, those of the most rudimentary understanding of salvation, that's how I had to speak to you, Paul says. As you are in position, right? I couldn't speak to you as you are in position. I couldn't speak to you as spiritual. They were spiritual, but he couldn't talk to them like they were, you see? So that word as is very important here. And the word spiritual is important to understand how it applies. There's not some second class of Christians. Everybody has these things, see. And spiritual sometimes means practical, and here it does. Paul says, I wish you were as spiritual in your practice as you are in your position. And that's the cause of the division. Paul says, here's the cause. You're fleshly, he says. And so I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual. I had to speak to you as to carnal as to babes, as to, actually uses the word flesh, as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. And so Paul wants to make it clear, listen, you're believers, and you have some marvelous things at your disposal, and your position is a wonderful position, a high and lofty place where you sit. Paul says, I couldn't talk to you that way. And then verse 2, we'll just close with this. And here's where we're going to get to the symptoms next time. He goes, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, verse 3, for you're still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? So Paul says, listen, here's the cause, you're fleshly, and the symptoms are, and he's going to get to them next time, that's where we're going to jump in. And it's a hard message to hear, it's a hard message to study. It's difficult to go through it, because we see ourselves reflected there so badly so many times. But that's a marvelous thing about Scripture is that although it takes us apart and does a very good job doing it, it also gives us, as Paul's going to describe the cause and then the symptoms, and he's going to see, he's going to give us uh, what the solution is. And uh, don't expect it to be some, you know, 12-point program, okay? It's going to be one of those things where if you are this, then do this. That's how Paul always does. If you are this, such were some of you, but now you're washed, now you're sanctified, now you're glorified. All positional statements and yet reflecting on what's going to happen in the future for us. And so a marvelous thing to talk about, a marvelous thing to go through, uh, good for the church at any time. And so I pray that it'll uh, bring forth fruit in your own life uh, as it has in mind. Would you bow with me in prayer as we close our time out today? Lord, we thank you today for this marvelous time in your word, for uh, Alex's ministry among us, for Jim's and the other Sunday school teachers, for the children's church, uh, for all who were involved uh, in teaching, for Dorothy, all those who... Uh, benefited the saints by the ministry of the word. 
Uh, thank you also for the Be the Church class, which uh, is so, uh, such a wonderful joy for me to be a part of and to listen uh, to those who've come uh, and have bare fruit of salvation and have so many life experiences that are so great. And we're so grateful for what you're doing here. We're grateful for the continued work you do amongst our ministries, and we want to just praise you. This is your work here. We know that you're at work here, and so we pray that you'll continue to do that. Father, for our own life, as we reflect on the Word, we certainly want to know what it says, what it means by what it says, and how it applies. And your Holy Spirit many times does that for us, that application portion, and I pray that you will have much fruit among us as we open our lives up to these things. And Lord, we pray for uh, this week that comes, that all the things we'll be involved with, and the ministries that will be going on, and the ministry we have in life amongst those that we have influence on. I pray that we'll be good witnesses of you, not forsaking the giving up of the gospel to those who we come in contact with. It was nice to miss any of those opportunities. Open our own mouth, open their heart, open your word, Father, that we may see fruit of this marvelous gospel which continues to change men and women around the world. And Lord, I pray that we'll be a fruitful church in that respect. And Lord, thank you for those uh, who are ministering today. We pray that your blessing on them. For tonight, as uh, John comes and leads us in Joshua, I pray that we'll be here together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, but all the more as we see the day of your return coming uh, that will be about that. So we thank you for that, and we give you praise today. And may your name be glorified, and may your Son, who alone belong dominion and power, who will reign forever and ever, whom we long to see. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people together said, Amen.